Exceeding Expectations, episode 97. Welcome to another edition of Exceeding Expectations. My guest in this week's episode is Jeff Thatcher. He's the founder and chief creative officer at Creative Principles. And uh, we talk about a lot of different things in this uh, episode, including creativity and and leadership and brainstorming and separating business from work, mergers and and many other things. I'm sure you're going to enjoy this week's episode with Jeff. This is the podcast where we aim to give you ideas on how you can give your customers a better experience and with the end result in you enjoying your work more and you getting better testimonials and referrals because your customers enjoy working with you. Please do leave a review for us on iTunes or any other podcast platform. And while you're there, why not subscribe? Now, time for this week's episode with Jeff. Exceeding expectations, my guest today, Jeff Thatcher. How are you, Jeff? I'm great. How are you, Tony? I'm pretty good, thanks. And you were just telling me that you're in an airport. I mean, no one goes to airports anymore, do they? Well, technically, I'm in an airport hotel, but I will be stepping into the airport in a couple of hours, and it's not as crowded as it used to be, and it's kind of sad, but I do believe that things will get back to normal. Uh, I uh, hate it when people talk about new normal, uh, because Mm -hmm. if you look at history, Tony, we will get back to normal. Life always is changing, that is true, but we Mm -hmm. will get back to normal. And because you, I, from what, again, from our conversation before, you, you fly quite a lot generally in your business, don't you? <laughs> Way too much. Yeah. Right. No, I'm, you know, uh, you know, pinkies up. I'm the whole diamond medallion, you know, on Delta and ambassador with Marriott. But uh, yeah, I, I fly a lot. And what, what is it that you do? What is your business? So I'm an experienced designer and uh, I got started in this crazy business as a 14-year-old cleanup boy. And that was, yes, the official title of my job was cleanup boy at an amusement park when I was 14, way back in the 80s. And I've been in this industry ever since. And so we work on everything from you know, brand experiences and corporate lobbies and visitor centers to museum exhibits, theme park attractions, entertainment attractions, uh, zoos, you name it. And is that in any particular sort of geographical area or is it pretty widespread? We work around the world. Uh, you know, I, I founded my own company three years ago. And uh, since we started, uh, it's called Creative Principles. And since we started our own company, I've worked on projects in Abu Dhabi and Dubai and Singapore and Riyadh and Houston, Texas and Boston. So uh, really, we work all over the world. And uh, probably one of my favorite projects, I was the creative director for the grand opening launch of Warner Brothers World. Abu Dhabi, which is a fantastic indoor theme park on Yaz Island. And so what, what was your involvement in that? Did you design the whole thing? What was it you did for that? I was the creative director for the, the launch of the park. So right. I didn't actually design the park. I, I worked on the launch. But as part of the launch, we designed and built a working Batmobile, a street legal Batmobile. We designed costumes. We created a, a great app that allows you to find out which Warner Brothers character you might be. I'm Tweety Bird, by the way. Uh, we hmm. could take that test, Tony, if you wanted, and find out who you are. You might be Wonder Woman or perhaps uh, the Joker. I'm not sure. And mm-hmm. uh, so it was a lot of fun. 
What is it about you do what you do that you really enjoy? Well, at the end of the day, uh, what I do is about creativity, and I'm mm. trained as a writer, so I love words and I love writing, and uh, I love coming up with great ideas and then helping to work with an amazing team of people to take those ideas from concept to reality. So how, how do you go about coming up with those ideas in the first place? That is a very good question, and people ask me that all the time. You know, there is this debate. Are there people that are just more creative than other people? And mm. to a degree, I think the answer would be yes. But if you ask me why I'm creative, it's because mm. I'm always seeking connections. If you want to be creative, no matter who you are, and no matter whether you think you're creative or not, it's about getting stimulus and input into your life so you can make connections. So if you're not surrounding yourself with great music, with great visuals, uh, Pinterest, for example, is an amazing tool for creativity because you go on it and you, you look for ideas. And, you know, it's just about being inspired. I, I, we, my daughter and I, Zoe, who works for us as a designer, we published a book uh, during the pandemic. And the illustrative style that we wanted for the book uh, came from an Instagram post she did way back in October, on October 29th. It was a little pen sketch of a girl in a red scarf. And I was just going through you know, Instagram looking at it, and I saw Zoe's post, and I immediately made the connection that that was the perfect style to represent the story of the CEO's time machine. And so making that connection resulted in, I think, great creativity. And then, you know, three weeks after the pandemic, Zoe had done 43 illustrations and we were able to get the book published. So it's about connections. So when you're creating these experiences for, for the different people you work with, do they tend to just give you like enormous scope and just see what you can come up with or they often quite sort of um but they give you some ideas to start with and say we want you to do something around this well it it all depends i mean every project is different uh some projects they're interested in a vision and your job is to really come up with the initial concept uh, other jobs they have the concept figured out and your job is just to kind of execute that in a creative mm -hmm. way so it, mm -hmm. it really depends upon the project but the bottom line is, is what we deliver more than anything else for our clients is creativity. And so I, if, if all of the creative has already worked out, there's, there's not a whole lot of value in, mm -hmm. in hiring us. Uh, yeah. Where you get your value in hiring, uh, hiring me and our company is, is if you need high-level creativity. That's why we named the firm Creative Principles. It's about creative leadership. If you need creative mm -hmm. leadership, call us. If you've already figured out the creative creativity stuff and you just need somebody to produce it or execute it, I mean, we can do it, but you're not getting the best value. Yeah. Have you got any, can you think of any experiences that you created that particularly stand out in your memory? Um, you know, there's, um, there's one, you know, you're in London, Tony, mm -hmm. and one of my favorite projects was working on a, science museum called Ingenuity in Colebrookdale, which is right near Ironbridge, which is the birthplace of the Industrial Revolution. Mm. And that project was memorable to me because it was a lot of fun working on it. And I think the museum turned out great. And I loved that area of England. 
Um, but why it impacted me probably more than anything else is because, you know, great creativity and great projects are best because they tend to take us places where we weren't expecting. And here you have, you know, in the 16th century, 1709, I think it was, Abraham Darby, who simply wanted to figure out a way to make a better iron pot. And mm -hmm. so in the process of trying to figure out how to make a better iron pot, which you could argue is a very boring proposition, he invented the blast furnace. And without that blast furnace, you wouldn't have iron bridges, which, of course, they built the first iron bridge uh, across the Severn mm -hmm. River. And without the blast furnace, you wouldn't have had uh, the, the iron that goes into pistons that then fueled the steam engine, which then turned into train tracks, which then fueled the industrial revolution. I could go on and on and on. But it all started with somebody simply wanting to make a better iron pot. So mm. I would say to people, even if you think what you're coming up with is boring, uh, mm. go for it because you have no idea what your invention, what your idea, what your creativity might lead to. I mean, we wrote this book, The CEO's Time Machine. I have no idea where it's going to go. You know, mm. it could end up being read by 200 people and that's the end of it. Or it could change the way CEOs think about business. Who knows? So I say go for it. And that's what I learned in Colebrookdale working on this museum called Ingenuity. And when the, the book you just mentioned, CEO's Time Machine, when did that come out? It came out about a month and a half ago, right? You know, when the, when the pandemic hit and, you know, we all went into shelter in place and lockdown, I turned mm -hmm. to Zoe, uh, my daughter, uh, and I said, let's do something crazy. And so we had been talking about doing a book, but the problem with doing projects in your spare time is you never have any spare time. And so hmm. when we had this pause from the pandemic, I, I turned to Zoe and I said, let's, let's do this book. And we'd already written the story, but we didn't have any of the illustrations done. And so she generated 43 illustrations in three weeks. Uh, we hired a graphic designer to help us with the layout and the cover. We hired a copy editor to help us clean up the copy and clean it up. And we reached out to a publisher and was able to convince this really kind of boutique, crazy publisher to work with us to publish the book. And we got it out in five weeks from wow. when we started to when it was published and available on Amazon, five weeks. It was awesome and exhilarating. <laughs> I can imagine. That's, that's some going five weeks. And it's getting great reviews, which is good. So, And so, I mean, I, I guess it's, it's um, aimed at C CEOs or is it also other people as well? You know, it's really for everybody. Um, uh, but certainly, you know, the title of the book is The CEO's Time Machine. And it's about... A Elon Musk's, you know, Steve Jobs type of CEO, like a Tony Stark, if you will, who is this incredible inventor and uh, CEO who's kind of invented the future in new marketplaces. And he has a secret R&D garage at his corporate headquarters that nobody's allowed to go into. And the rumor is there's a time machine inside of it. And he's turning mm -hmm. over the reins of the company to his protege, a younger woman. And the last thing he has to teach her before she officially becomes the new CEO is what's inside his garage. And he has to introduce her to his time machine. And um, what is your aim for the book? What do you hope readers to get from it? Well, it's about a time machine and 
we use time machines to travel to the past. We use time machines to travel to the future. And I hope what people learn from the book is the importance of connecting the future to our past and vice versa. But more important than that is even if you travel to the future and even if you travel to the past, you still have to make decisions today. So for example, you and I could hop in a time machine. We could go back to 1919 and we could talk to the British prime minister at the time about the Spanish flu. We could go talk to doctors. We could go talk to anyone in 1919 about the Spanish flu. And Mm -hmm. how did you deal with it? How did the economy recover? How did you get things back to normal? But the reality is, is we still have to come back to June 19th, 2020, and we have to make a decision about what we're going to do today. And the same could be said for the future. You You and I could travel into the future two years and see how the world has changed, but we still have to come back to the present and make a decision. So that's what I want people to learn is connect the past to the future, but know that in the end, you have to be decisive in the moment. And so do you think that most people have a problem doing, doing that, connecting the past and the future? Yes, I absolutely do. You know, my experience by and large has been most CEOs uh, are not interested in the past. They're only interested in the future. And this mm. is a fatal flaw because they forget how important the past can be. I mean, the first thing that I do on any project is I benchmark and I look to the past. I look to examples. And if you're an industrial designer, you look to the past. I mean, I think it's ironic that Nest created a thermostat in the shape of a circle when Honeywell, who invented the circular thermostat, was rejecting their past and ignoring their past and didn't realize that All along, they had in their own history this amazing, innovative product. And it took an outsider like Nest to realize it. And then, of course, Honeywell sues Nest over the thermostat. So, you know, listen, I'm not, you know, clairvoyant. I have no idea if Honeywell caring more about its history would have changed that. But the reality Mm -hmm. is, is Nest, who created this amazing, innovative thermostat, was inspired by Honeywell's circular thermostat, which was the past of that company. And so why do you think companies make mistakes like that? What is it that they why do they overlook things? I like think that? they're obsessed about the future. I, mm. I think they're obsessed about only looking forward and not looking backward. And mm. what they fail to realize in that is that you you can learn from the past and you you should, yes, start with the future. I mean, the guy that wrote the forward to our book, he has a saying. Uh, called Start with the Future and Work Back. And Mm -hmm. you need to start with the future, but you need to look back. And then, Mm -hmm. you know, talk about being decisive. I mean, companies make mistakes all the time by not being decisive. One of the stories Mm -hmm. we tell in the book is about Kelly Johnson, who was the founder of Skunk Works, the famous Lockheed Martin, uh, you know, research, you know, aviation, you know, department in Lockheed. I mean, They invented the U-2 spy plane, the SR-71, the F-22, you name it. And when Kelly Johnson was retiring, he brought in Ben Rich. Now, Ben Rich was the person who invented the F-117 stealth airplane. So, I mean, this is no slacker, right? And Mm -hmm. Kelly Johnson was supposed to spend two weeks with Ben Rich, teaching him how to be the CEO of Skunk Works. And Ben Rich simply told him, he said, listen, in five minutes, I can tell you everything you need to know. He said, number one, make a decision. Even if it's the wrong decision, make 
a decision. And then the second thing he said is, if you need to kill a project, don't wound it, kill it dead. So those are the two pieces of advice he gave Ben Rich. So um, I think you see examples all over the place of leaders not being decisive and waiting and pondering. Just make a decision already. What is it, before we started recording, you were telling me about one of the things that you're quite big on is managing expectations. Do you want to tell us about that? Well, I happen to think that one of the big problems in the workplace today is that people have unrealistic expectations. And so, you know, if you want to exceed expectations, you have to manage those expectations. And it's very Mm -hmm. important. Uh, I mean, just this week we were in Nashville on business and we were doing a charrette. We were brainstorming. And it's very important when you brainstorm to help manage expectations and to let people know, for example, that there's going to be disagreement, there's going to be passion, there's going to be sparks. But creative sparks are okay. Creative sparks help generate ideas. It's part of that stimulus, part of those connections that we talked about earlier. So you have to manage those expectations. I mean, I think a lot of people come into the workplace and expect that they're going to make best friends at work. And, you know, I mean, yes, you need to be friendly at work. And yes, you can make good friends at work, but that's not the most important thing to happen in the workplace. It's if you manage expectations and you teach someone coming out of college into the workplace that the most important thing you can do is to serve the mutual interests of those around you, um, you'll do very well. If you're expecting that you're going to have all these best friends at work, you'll be disappointed because, you know, it happens all the time where, you know, somebody gets laid off. And everybody hugs and, oh, we'll still go out to lunch all the time and we'll still be friends. And they all hug each other. And it's it's Mm. fake. It doesn't Mm. happen. You know what I mean? I mean, I remember I got fired once. And the person who fired me wanted to give me a hug. And I Mm. she reached out to hug me and I put my hand up. I said, excuse me? And she goes, what, you don't want a hug? I said, no, I don't want a hug. You just fired me. You know what I mean? And she, and it's like she has this unrealistic expectation that we're supposed to be like have, oh, this is friendship and it's painful and whatever. No, it's work. You know, they fired me for a reason. It was actually a great thing they did because it helped me out a lot. I was very happy I got fired. Uh, I mean, not at the time, but it ended up being a great thing to happen to me. But, you know, you've got to manage real expectations. I mean, to take it out of workplace, Zoe, who, you know, illustrated our book, when she went to college, she had a, a full, you know, full ride swimming scholarship. And we told her, we said, it's a job. Don't expect that coach to be your friend. That coach is making money and supporting his family by making you go faster. And if you don't go faster, he's going to be mad at you. So it's a job and treat it like a job. And some people would say that's cynical, but if you want to exceed expectations, you have to manage expectations in the first place. I mean, you know, I would love someday for somebody to come in on a merger and instead of saying this is a merger of equals, just simply say, we bought you, we're in charge now. Because then you're mm-hmm. managing expectations. It's very mm-hmm. difficult to exceed expectations when you come into a merger and you say, this is a merger of equals. Because guess what? It's never a merger of equals. There's always somebody who buys somebody else and that person who buys you is in charge. And so you... If you don't go in with that expectation that they bought you and they're in charge, guess what? You're not going to be able to exceed expectations. 
And what sort of things have you done for businesses to exceed their expectations? Well, I mean, what we try to do is create incredible experiences. And, you know, um, one of my favorite projects that I worked on was the Warner Brothers World Abu Dhabi, which I think we talked about earlier. And we wanted to do uh, the brief that they gave us was they wanted an experience that would last beyond the grand opening. And mm-hmm. so one of the things that we developed was a viral video with a YouTube uh, influencer and director by the name of Devin Supertramp. And it was a tour of Warner Brothers World Abu Dhabi with the uh, most popular parkour athlete in the world. It was basically, you know, the Joker versus, you know, Batman meets parkour. And mm-hmm. how do you exceed expectations? Well, you know, now, two years after that grand opening, the, we're about to hit 18 million views on both YouTube and Facebook uh, for that yeah. video. So, you know, that's our goal is to create experiences that exceed those expectations. <clears throat> so I'm just thinking more about when you were talking about the book and you, know, you, say, you said that you, you got it done in five weeks, but you'd already written some of the content. When... You, when did you first start thinking about the possibility of a book and what, what were the reasons? So Bruce Weindrick wrote the foreword to our book. And Bruce is the CEO of the History Factory. And in, mm-hmm. in July of 2016, I was working with Bruce on a project in Riyadh for the King Abdullah Foundation. So King Abdullah uh, had, had died. And his mm-hmm. foundation wanted to do a traveling ex- exhibition. And so we were researching the history of King Abdullah and trying to connect it to the future of Saudi Arabia. Now, mm. Tony, I really don't want to get into geopolitics on this call, but there's no, no doubt that the changes that you're seeing in Saudi Arabia today are due in part to the scholarship programs that King Abdullah initiated that sent hundreds of thousands of Saudi citizens to England, to Canada, the United States, to France, to get their college degree. And then all of these graduates then returned home to the kingdom and they wanted more. They wanted more freedom. They wanted better jobs. They wanted entrepreneurialism. They wanted more. And so, you know, sometimes people criticize me for working in Saudi Arabia, but I always like to say, well, I'm not, (laughs) I'm working with the you know, 30-year-old graduate from Boston University who's trying to start up, you know, and change their country. That's who I'm working with over there. You know, I'm, mm-hmm. I'm not working with the president, you know, the, the crown prince, and the pre- you know, the senior ministers. I, I'm working with, you know, young people who are trying to change the country. And uh, so when we were working on this project, uh, I started thinking about time travel. And, you know, Bruce was kind of going on uh, in, a, in a good way about his philosophy, which is start with the future and work back. And so on one of my long flights back from Saudi Arabia, I was thinking about time travel and decided to write a book about time travel called The CEO's Time Machine. Cool. I, and I get the impression from some of the things that you were saying just there well, and throughout the recording so far, I get the feeling you're quite into history. I do love history. Uh, it's important to me and, you know, I've worked on a number of history exhibits, 
Uh, and so, you know, I mean, I did several projects with Lockheed Martin, and that's why you see Lockheed Martin in the book. And I mean, to be able to, for example, to hold the letter in your hand that Amelia Earhart sent to Lockheed ordering her Electra, the same Electra that she disappeared in on her flight around the world, I think that's pretty cool. And mm-hmm. so, yeah, I, I, I love history. And I don't think history is about the past because, I mean, again, it's another story we tell in the book. And you could go back to the Wright brothers and talk to them. And, you know, the Wright brothers made a huge mistake. They sued everybody instead of innovating. And there's a reason today that, that we have a Boeing, a Northrop, a Lockheed, an Airbus, you know, a Rolls Royce. And it's, and we don't have, you know, the Wright brothers. I, you know, I'm, I'm flying today from Atlanta to Savannah, Georgia, and I'm going to be on an Embraer airplane. I'm not going to be on a Wright brothers airplane. And that's kind of mm-hmm. sad. But one of the reasons that's true is because they spent their most valuable time, you know, suing people rather than innovating. And mm-hmm. so is that a lesson that we can learn today? Yes, absolutely. That has relevance to what every company must deal with today. Mm. Where do you see your business going over the next few years? Well, uh, you know, a lot of our projects are on hold because we create experiences and there's a lot of experiences that are closed. I mean, they're starting to reopen, but, you know, it's absolutely true. Many of our projects have been pushed back or on hold. Um, Business is down. Um, so in the short term, I'm just hoping that we, you know, get a little busier. Um, mm. In the long term, uh, I hope that the book is the beginning of generating my own intellectual property. I mean, over the years, you know, I've worked with, you know, Lockheed Martin. That's great IP. I've worked with, you know, Warner Brothers IP, you know, Bugs and Daffy and, you know, Batman. Uh, I've worked with... Uh, a number of, you know, other projects like, you know, uh, Green Bay Packers, uh, uh, you know, football teams, amazing IP. Uh, as a creative person, my dream is to begin generating my own intellectual property. And certainly the book that we published is the first step in that direction. So I hope someday um, I'm working more on our own intellectual property than others IP. That's a long term goal. Mm-hmm. And so have you got plans for a follow-up book? Uh, actually, I already have one written. Uh, just making wow. a few changes, new final tweaks to it, have a publisher in place. Um, it's, uh, it's a coming-of-age story set in an amusement park, which is something I know all about. So it's kind of, you know, semi-autobiographical memoir. And then I also want to create a book called The Experience Model, um, which really, I mean, what's kind of cool about the book is the book is written like a theme park attraction. I mean, if you look at any great experience, there's psychology involved and a formula involved that makes it work. Uh, have you ever been to Orlando, Tony? No. Oh, no. I thought everybody in England has been to Orlando. I'm shocked. Well, I'm the sole exception. You're the sole. <laughs> well, where do you vacation? Oh, many different places. I'm not into doing the kind of normal... I, I often cycle across countries, for example. I've cycled across India and Cuba and New Zealand. And, yeah. Can I ask you a personal question, Tony? Of course you can. Are they ever going to invent 
the equivalent of yoga clothing that you can wear, you know, out to dinner for cyclists. Because I feel bad for those cyclists who are in those funky kits, you know, they wear with the bright colors and the padded butts and the, you know, the zipper down the front. And then they step into a Starbucks and they just look so odd and out of place. So is anybody ever going to invent cycling fashion that works when you're not on a bike? Well, it's actually, I mean, funny enough, I mean, when I do these sorts of trips, I'm not into wearing all that lycra stuff that so many cyclists wear. And there is, um, I mean, I, I guess actually thinking about it, I just tend to wear normal clothes, but I just wear some padded underwear kind of thing you know but other than that everything i'm wearing is is normal it's not what a cyclist would wear because i sometimes and i'm probably gonna invite the ire of millions of cyclists but it's sometimes you know you're you're like you know you're on a walk or you're riding your mountain bike and there's this you know gang of cyclists come by but they're going like five miles an hour and they're totally dressed up in the kit and you're like do you really need all that stuff? I mean, it's like, you know, my daughter's a swimmer and she only wears the serious, you know, tech suit when she actually competes at important meets. The rest of the time she just wears a regular swimsuit. So mm. I, I guess, I guess what I'm asking is, is, uh, is, is, is there within the cycling community any disagreement on when it's necessary to wear all that fancy kit? Well, I wouldn't say that I'm really in the cycling community. I just like to, when I go, I, I find it a great way of actually seeing a country. I just, you know, I get on the bike because you see something interesting, you just get off the bike and take a look. Oh, I agree so with I'm, that. Yeah. So in England, for example, I hardly use my bike, but I, I, th- I find it a great way of really discovering other places. Yeah. I mean, I just have a, a very simple it's not even a mountain bike. It's more, it's, well, it's kind of like a mountain bike, I guess, but it's more, I live by the beach. And so it's more kind of like a, um, uh, a beach mountain bike, you know, it's got the thicker tires and stuff, but, but, mm. uh, I love it. I was actually just, we, I was biking through Beaufort, South Carolina last Saturday. And again, because you're on a bike, it's so great just cause you're just more connected with things. And mm-hmm. we were, I was biking and, and we biked past a national cemetery. And of course, you know, we have protests and so much unrest right now in the United States. Uh, and it was very emotional simply to stop my bike and to walk over to this fence and look at 19,000 tombstones representing soldiers who are buried there, you know, the majority of which were killed in the Civil War. And, mm. you know, we're still fighting. And it was kind of yeah. sad and poignant. Mm. But that would have never well, happened if I would have been driving by. Versus no, exactly. Yeah. And that's, that's the thing that I really like about the, um, the biking trips. Because, as you say, you just see something interesting. And you're more likely to see it. Whereas in a car, you probably wouldn't have even spotted it in the first place because you go past so quick. Yeah. We were working on a, an attraction in Gatlinburg, Tennessee once, which is the Smoky Mountains. And mm. the client shared with us research that said the, I, I, and I'm probably going to get the specifics wrong, but the, I'll get the gist of it right. But it was like, you know, something like 80% of the people that go to the Smoky Mountains and drive through the Smoky Mountains never get out of their car. <laughs> it's wow. like, really? It was sad. 
it, it, that reminds me of when I, I said one of the trips I did, we cycled across Cuba. And most of the places we were staying in were sort of little, nothing fancy at all. It, it wasn't, wasn't shacks, but it wasn't exactly luxurious. Right. But, but there was one day, I don't know, really know why, but the organizers of the whole trip, we were staying in an all-inclusive hotel. You know, the type of places where everything is free, the food, the drink, and so on. And I, I got speaking with a number of people who had been there for a week, 10 days, whatever, and they hadn't left the place at all. And I just thought, well, why come to a beautiful place like Cuba and just, you might as well have just stayed at home. It's just crazy to me. I know. I know. We, we, we like to vacation in Hawaii, uh, specifically the island of Kauai. And, you know, but the day we fly out of the airport, we always go down closer to the city because we like to be out, you know, we like to be out in the more remote places. We kind of have a, a family saying that if you don't find a nudist, you haven't found the best beach. And it's just kind of a, a joke because we like to find really remote beaches. And the reality is, is if you are good at finding remote beaches, that means you're good at finding nudists. So we, as a family, which can be awkward at times, run into uh, nudists constantly on our vacations. But, uh, and that's probably a whole other podcast, Tony, if you want to go there. But, uh, but you know, we always go back and we just get a hotel near the airport. Uh, and it's mm. always so sad to us when we're, you know, we see these people, they're in these cabanas eating nachos. And it's like, it's like, you never even got out to see like the mountains and the crazy beaches. And anyway, I'm mm. being judgy. I shouldn't judge, you know? Yeah, well, I mean, yeah. Exactly. We're all different, aren't we? Yeah. I mean, the, the reality is, and again, going back to exceeding expectations, you know, what is your expectation? I mean, we mm. went to this beach, we love to go to this beach called Lumahai on the north shore of Kauai, mm. and it's gorgeous. They actually shot the South Pacific there. It's, you know, the, the movie, the, you know, the classic mm. South Pacific musical from, I don't know what it was, the 60s or 70s or 50s. I'm not sure when they shot it. I mean, they, mm. it's a beautiful beach. And we were, we'd spent the whole day there, and we were getting ready to walk back up to our car because we wanted to go get some shave ice. And there was this family that was walking down, and the mom was really mad. And she was kind of yelling at her husband and she's, cause it's a hike. You have to hike down to the beach and it's, you know, it's not like, you know, the Himalayas or anything, but you know, it's, it's a hike. And, mm-hmm. and she turned to her husband and said, this is not my idea of a vacation. And we, <laughs> we kind of laughed that it was, it is about what is your expectation? Because if mm. you want to exceed expectations, the first thing you have to do is manage the expectations of the people around you. I mean, mm. you know, at the charrette we did in Nashville this week, you know, the brainstorming, uh, you know, we always start with a really kind of fun, you know, brainstorming exercises. But I know some people in the corporate world don't like what they consider to be gimmicky brainstorm activities. And so I always like mm. to say, will you humor me for a minute? Just humor me for a minute. And that tends to manage expectations. Uh, and then if you can manage those expectations, then you can exceed those expectations. What does the, what does the phrase exceeding expectations, what does, it, what does it mean to you? Well, it is exceeding or going past, going beyond, going further than what your client or others around you are expecting. And... Mm. So, you know, for example, you want to work faster than is expected. Now, 
what I know some people in business do is they say it's going to take longer uh, so they can deliver faster. You know, they say, you know, we're, we're going to give you five renderings when they're planning on giving them eight renderings so they can exceed expectations. And everybody wants to exceed expectations, but at the same time, you have to make money. So hmm. um, I prefer to exceed expectations by, um, by, you know, and again, it's back to what I do, is by thinking about the project on a deeper level. I mean, hmm. I am a creative director. It is very common for people not to like my ideas. That's just part of the business is for people not to like your ideas. You're not going to sell every idea you have. Uh, Sometimes you can come up with 10 fantastic ideas and they want more. It's just, it's just the nature of the beast. You know, I mean, you're Mm -hmm. a creative director. It's, you know, you have to have a thick skin, but Mm -hmm. even if somebody doesn't like my idea, I feel like I've exceeded expectations. If they say to me, well, I'm not sure we can do what you presented, but I really like the thinking that went into it. Mm. Because if you get the thinking right, if you get the strategy right, then mm. you could argue about execution and the specific yeah. ideas. But it's the thinking that's important. I mean, I once wanted to recommend to a client a giant pinata, and I won't get into the details, but it, 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 there was a reason why I wanted to put a pinata in their lobby, like a massive mm-hmm. pinata, like the size of a car, like hanging from mm-hmm. the lobby, uh, you know, the ceiling of this lobby, a pinata. And I remember my CEO at the time was like, you can't, you can't recommend that. That's crazy. I'm like, no, it's mm-hmm. not. And I explained to him why I didn't think it was crazy. And I explained that there's, you know, strategic reasons for the pinata and that it wasn't, you know, it was going to be a nice pinata. It wasn't going to be like a cheap pinata. It'd be like, you know, it's like a very, you know, and it, people would be able to, you know, with a touchscreen interactive, like, like take virtual swings at it and a little, you know, piece of candy would pop out of a machine. It'd be fun. And mm-hmm. so finally the CEO relented and said, well, you can present it, but you can't use the word pinata. And so mm-hmm. I said, Okay, so I called it this giant, you know, sculptural, uh, you know, uh, edifice full of candy. <laughs> you know what I mean? And, and the chief marketing officer leaned forward and he goes, you mean a pinata? And I said, yeah, a pinata. And the CEO kicked me out of the table. But here's the thing. The, the CMO said to me, he said, you know, he goes, we're not going to do a pinata. He goes, but I love the fact that you presented a pinata. Because that's the type of thinking that I want. I want that type of bold, out-of-the-box thinking. So, you know, when it comes to exceeding expectations, I think the most important thing you can do, uh, whether I think it's creative or anything else, is put a lot of thinking into it. And, of course, because I'm a writer, to me, thinking translates into writing. Well, and a lot of people... We will. At school, in most countries, we don't have creative thinking. We're not taught how to think creatively. Yeah. I, I think part of that is because writing is not as important as it used to be. Mm. And again, part of the problem is, is a lot of times, you know, CEOs and leaders are busy. And so they're not going to take the time to read. So mm. you might spend... Uh, you know, in the past, you would spend time writing, and mm-hmm. and then you would give that report to your boss, and your boss would read that report. 
Then, of course, came executive summaries. Then came PowerPoint. And, you know, the problem is, is, you know, you can... It's really hard to teach this, but if you want to exceed expectations, take the time to write, even if you know nobody's going to read it but you. Because Mm -hmm. if you write, then you can condense that writing into an outline that can go into a PowerPoint with supporting visuals, and then you can present it. Because you know know if you you spend time writing a 20-page document, your leader is not going to take the time to read that 20 pages. They're just not. They're too busy. But your output, your 10 slides that come from that 20-page document are going to be more thoughtful. And if there's a question about a point in that PowerPoint, you have already thought about that question and can answer it because you spent the time to actually write. Too many people skip the writing and go straight to putting the PowerPoint together and they shortchange the thinking. And if you yeah. shortchange the thinking, you're not going to be able to exceed expectations. Jeff, if, if people want to find out more about you and, and your book and everything you do, where would be the best places to go? Uh, the easiest place to find us is ceotimemachine.com. Or you can just Google Jeff Thatcher or the CEO's Time Machine. But, uh, you know, CEOtimemachine.com is probably the easiest place to find us. And when do you think, the new book you mentioned, when do you think that will be published? Oh, my newest, newest book. Um, I don't know. Um, uh, Probably not for a year, simply because I want to keep focusing on on this one. So Yeah, that makes sense, yeah. Right. And if you, apart from obviously your own amazing books, if is there a book that you often recommend to people that they should read? Well, keep in mind I'm in the experience industry, and I started working at an amusement park when I was 14 years old. And mm-hmm. um, uh, oh, geez, over a decade ago, I had an incredible experience to meet uh, someone named Buzz Price. And if you Google Buzz Price, you'll learn all about him. And this is the guy who picked the location of Anaheim for Disneyland. He was an economist from Stanford. And then he Mm -hmm. picked Orlando. Because, you know, Walt Disney was considering Miami, Virginia, other places for Disney World. He picked the location of Orlando. He's a feasibility and economic consultant. And so he picked Anaheim, and he picked Orlando as the location for the season resorts. And he invented the modern feasibility interest where you look at numbers and math. And so he wrote a book, and it's called Walt's Revolution by the Numbers. And Buzz Price is full of wisdom. And one of the most important things in that book is he tells a story about how Walt Disney did not like to hear no. But he Hmm. also didn't like yes men. And so Buzz coined a phrase that I think is so important to exceeding expectations. And that phrase Mm -hmm. is, yes, if. Yes, Mm -hmm. I can do that if you increase the budget. Yes, I can do that if you give me more time. Yes, I can do that if you manage your expectations so you know that this, this, and this will happen. Yes, Mm -hmm. if. Buzz liked to say that yes, if is the language of an enabler. Well, no, because is the language of a deal breaker. And so Mm. if you want to read a book 
other than the CEO's time machine, go to Amazon and look up Walt's Revolution by the Numbers by Buzz Price. He died, I think, 10 years ago, uh, you know, at 88 or 90 years old. I can't remember exactly how old he was, but uh, an amazing, amazing book. And if you're ever at Disneyland, you will find Buzz Price's name on one of the windows on one of the shops of Main Street because he is officially a Disney legend, Mr. Buzz Price. Well, Jeff, it's been fascinating speaking to you for the last 45 minutes. Um, I really appreciate your time, so thank you. Tony, thank you. And maybe we'll uh, bump into each other on a bike on the north shore of Kauai someday. (laughs) That, That sounds very good. Thank you, Jeff. Thank you. Next week is episode 98 with Tony S. Silver, who is an expert on LinkedIn. Do you use LinkedIn effectively? Do you get as many leads um, from it as you would like to? Tony is going to talk to us about how to use it to its full capacity to to really uh, maximize what you can really get from LinkedIn. And a lot of people are really unaware of exactly what LinkedIn can do. It's much more than just a site where you put your CV, which is what some people seem to believe. So that's next week's episode with Tony Silver. Hope you've enjoyed this week's show with Jeff Thatcher. Do share it with someone who you feel will get some value from it. And why not leave a review, subscribe, and I hope you have a fantastic week.